You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany sermon series, Family Matters. In this series, we speak into the most contentious societal issues of our day, not with the world's wisdom, but with God's. The blood of Jesus has ransomed people from every tribe, nation, and language across the earth. And this diverse, reconciled church will reign alongside Christ into eternity. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you guys. Uh, My name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors. Hello to everyone at home. Uh, Today's a big day, you guys. We got a lot happening. Uh, We're starting a new series. It's my daddy's birthday. If you know, to know my dad is to love him. Happy birthday, Pappy. But it doesn't stop there, you guys. It's Ryan Marsh's birthday. Look at him. Look at him. There he is. Oh, he hiding. It's Ryan Marsh's daddy's birthday, Steve Marsh. This is August 9th. And uh, if you notice over here, Daniel and Kristen Wainwright are with us, uh, which is a huge gift. Um, if you don't know who they are, they are uh, our church planters in Lyon, France. And so we get to go see them once or twice a year. They come back once every two, three years. Uh, so if you're like, that didn't sound like English in that one song a second ago, because it wasn't. That was French, which is a language they speak. And so they're back getting some, uh, just some rest and connection. And uh, you can imagine how crazy it would be going through everything we've gone through in another country, in another culture. And so we wanted to bring them and just say, hey, we thank God for you guys. Um, we love you guys and we want to pray for you. So we're, it's a privilege to be a part of their work. And uh, your presence here reminds us that God's church is a global church. And we're, we're just thankful to be family with you guys. So we're going to pray for them. And then Kristen's going to read the scriptures for us. So let's pray. Lord, we praise you. You are good and your mercy endures forever. Uh, We praise you for the many gifts that we have, evidences of of your love for us. And one of the most clear ones we have this morning is uh, Daniel and Kristen's presence with us. Uh, They have been a gift to us for many, many years, Lord. Uh, You know uh, all they've done for us on our behalf here and abroad. And we are grateful for their presence, reminding us that your kingdom, the promise of your kingdom is that every tribe, every nation, every tongue will gather to worship you. And they're evidence that uh, you are fulfilling that promise. Um, Your word tells us that if we lift up Christ, you will draw all men unto yourself. And we're thankful that French people are getting saved, uh, that uh, the churches are growing and being built there. And so while they are here with us and in the States, we pray, Lord, that they would feel the great delight you take in them, uh, the pleasure that you take in them, that when you look on them, you smile and you love them so that in your love and your presence, they would be refreshed. And I pray you'd continue leading us as a church to love them and serve them well as they are doing such important work. So we are grateful, Lord, to be your church together and in particular for Daniel and Kristen this morning. So we love you, Lord. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Thank you, Jonah, and thank you, Sojourn New Albany. You have been such a tangible expression of God's lavish love and grace for our family. Thank you. Um, You can follow along with today's reading in the bulletin on your Sojourn Collective app, along with the weekly kids' lesson and Bible readings for each day of the week and much more. Just tap media on your app. Now please stand for the reading of God's word. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, 
the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Hey, let's applaud for the Wainwrights one more time. Yeah. Oh, thanks. I thought we were about to have an awkward COVID hug, and I was like, I don't know, can we hug, can we not? But you're just making sure. I have my collar popped. Didn't want to have my collar popped. All right, y'all, we got a lot of ground to cover today, so y'all ready? Say yeah. Yeah. Okay, I need you today, Brittany. I need you, okay? The one person that talks in our church, but you're going to be, you're going to infect it and spread it. Okay, you can do it too. Oh, it's a competition, left side versus right side. It'll be like youth camp. Which side of the room is louder? Do you ever play that game at summer camp? Christians do the weirdest stuff. Um, okay, so listen. My wife and I had a cheap wedding. Some of that was because we had rich friends that let us use their whole house as a reception area. You know, he gets it. He gets it. You can applaud. Uh, but we didn't spend hardly any money on our wedding. Um, and instead of spending money on a wedding, we spent money on a honeymoon. And so we went to Italy, and we went all over Italy, and about an hour into our honeymoon, we learned that we handle money very differently as a couple. Some of that has changed since then, but here's, this is especially true, we especially feel it on vacation, because for me, on vacation, money just no longer exists. It stops being a thing. And your honeymoon is supposed to be like the vacation of vacations, right? It's like this is the biggest vacation you'll ever... That's the way I thought at the time. So money, it just becomes a thing that you trade for cannolis when you're in Italy. It's just this thing that if I give you this, you give me coffee or tiramisu or, or whatever. It stops existing. For my wife, money is a precious commodity where every penny has to be weighed and balanced. There's a value proposition. And then there's an emotional element. Does it feel worth it? Because what if we buy this cannoli and it's not good? And I'm like, if it's not good, we'll buy another one. And so, you know, she said I was frivolous, wasteful, those kinds of things. I said she was stingy and a buzzkill. And, you know, here we are day one and a half of our honeymoon. Um, if it involved money, it turned into a fight. Sorry, not a fight, a conversation, Right? because we were Christians, and Christians, Christians don't get angry. I don't know if you know this. We get frustrated, right? <laughs> we was fighting, y'all. Um, so as, you know, as the therapy has taken hold over the years, as we've been married you know, longer, it's, we're a couple of weeks away from being married for a decade, uh, some things that we've learned is, so for me, I grew up in an extravagant family, and the reasons that my family were extravagant uh, have a lot to do with how my parents grew up, and that had a lot to do with how their parents grew up. And so this long-term downstream effect was that my parents wanted to celebrate big whenever they could. And what that produced in me, without any of the story or baggage that my parents came with that led them to be, you know, the extravagant people they were, it made me be someone who was just kind of loose with money. And there was always something else you could go get with it, or there was always more you could find, or whatever. My wife's family was much more conservative, much more cautious and prudent with their money, which my wife, not having any of the reasons that led to it there with her family, it led to her at times being a little too tight with money. The way both of our families handled money, they had good reasons for it, and there was wisdom in both sides of it, and both of those different ways of handling money felt normal to us. 
My family's way of handling money was very normal for me. Her family's way of handling money was very normal for her. And initially, those first years in particular, both of us felt like our families were right. My family was right, your family is wrong. My family is right, your family is wrong. Both the perspectives have strengths and weaknesses, and both of us thought we were right. She's teaching me that some of what feels normal, what I grew up feeling like was normal, that is not, in fact, normal. And I'm teaching her that some of what she grew up feeling was normal is not, in fact, normal. Well, one of the primary reasons marriage is so complicated is because two families with two separate normals that are different try to become one family with one normal. Y'all, if you've been married for more than a half an hour, you've experienced that some way. If you've been friends with somebody for more than a half an hour and you're, you've run into them and they, they just do something that is so different than you do, they don't think it's wrong or bad, you have two normals that collide. Often, you don't realize that what feels normal to you is not normal until it collides with the normal of somebody else. And this gets even more complicated when the church or the scriptures describe the church as a family. And in some ways, we're, you know, a large married couple that don't press the analogy too far, but how complex might that be if we're in a body of several hundreds of people? If you've experienced that tension with one individual, how much more complicated will that be when we try to create one new normal as the big C church with hundreds of people? Sojourn Church, uh, Sojourn Collective, of which our church is a part of, this family of local churches in the Kentuckiana area, is we're a couple of weeks away from hitting our 20-year anniversary. So we've been around for 20 years. Uh, through this series that we're starting today on Family Matters, we're going to be celebrating some of our rich history, the parts that feel normal to us that have been really good and really normal. And we're also going to look at some of the things that feel normal to us and are not, in fact, normal. And listen, those kinds of conversations, whether in your marriage or your friendships or in your church, they are hallmarks of healthy families and healthy systems. Healthy families know how to have hard conversations. Healthy families can celebrate the good parts about their families and point out the broken parts. And they don't even necessarily have to be broken as much as places where they aren't as healthy. So, we want the next 20 years to be even better than the last. So we want to look to God's word to teach us more of what it means to be a healthy family. Healthy families have hard conversations for the sake of of greater health. This is a key to healthy marriage, healthy church, healthy relationships, open, honest communication. One author that I came across, uh, he puts it real succinctly. If you, get, if you haven't noticed, I can be a little chatty and wordy, and so I love when somebody can put something right in a sentence. So Simon Chan says, knowing what God wants heightens rather than diminishes our responsibility. Here's the idea. Clarity produces responsibility. As I learned more about how my wife operates, that gives me an increased responsibility to pay attention to what I'm doing and how I'm caring for her. If we can grow in clarity in what it means to be the church, we will all hopefully feel the weight of the responsibility we have of being the family of God. Clarity produces responsibility. So we want to talk about what is the family of God? What's our responsibility? And we wanted to start in the beginning, perhaps the greatest intro to any book of all time. Genesis chapter 1 begins in the beginning, right? Great, great title. And what's implied here is there was a time before the beginning. 
Because God does say, in the beginning, I don't know, the, the lizard people created God or something like that. It's no, in the beginning, God. So before there was anything, God existed. And as we'll learn throughout Genesis chapter 1, God existed in a perfect community called the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So one way you can think about the creator God is he is a relational artist. God, in the context of his community, creates something that is far beyond, far more extravagant, far more beautiful than we would have any kind of concept of. He creates galaxies and fish. He creates universes and solar systems, and he creates mammals and dinosaurs and all kinds of different apples and strawberries and thousands of different kinds of berries. And he just goes over the top, and this happens in the context of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are perfectly content out of the overflow of that perfection, creating all that there is. Then something special happens. Verse 26, let us, do you see that? Let us So there's a little Trinity tease for you. Let us make us make. (laughs) That's not what it says. That's a typo. Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. So this relational God creates a beautiful, extravagant universe, and then he creates one thing in particular to operate, to be like he is. A relational God makes beings in his image like him designed for relationships. So part of what it means to be the family of God, part of what it just means to be a human is that we were created for community. We were created for family. After God creates a human being, there's, no, there's nothing wrong per se. There's no rebellion. He sees Adam alone. And look at what he says. This is from Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper who is just right for him. So a human being, even in a sinless world, a human being alone is not good. That, that somehow diminishes who they are as a human. Or, um, it, it isn't the full representation of being an image bearer of God. There's a community component that is necessary. We were made for each other. We were made to be in relationships, to exist in community with one another. And immediately after this, we see that the consequences of sin are fundamentally about relationships. So the reaction to human beings sinning, what happens first? Adam and Eve hide in a bush, which that reminds me of like my four-year-old hiding behind a curtain uh, with their toes peeking out. Well, I guess she's five now. They grow up so fast, Ricky. (laughs) My five-year-old has her toes peeking out. Can you imagine hiding in a bush from the God of the universe? It's kind of wild, but that's what fear makes you do. Fear makes you do irrational, ridiculous things. And so we see a scared human being Go into a bush. Fear is on the scene for the first time. Some of you know fear. Some of you know how poisonous fear is in relationships. After fear, we see shame comes on the scene. They cover their nakedness. Their glory is diminished, and they see that they are naked. So they try to cover themselves up because they feel like something is wrong with them. Guilt comes on the scene. God asks Adam, what have you done? Y'all remember what Adam says? The woman, right? That woman will say it, Brittany? Yeah, yeah. And if you, if you go back and you can read this in Genesis 3, Adam doesn't just say it was the woman's fault. He actually blames God. He says, hey, God, what happened? Well, the woman you gave to me. And what, 
When do you do irrational, crazy things like that? The God that just breathed into dirt made you, and you're going to make it seem like this is his fault? You can see him squirming under the weight of guilt. He's trying to find a way to get out of it. So fear, shame, and guilt are the primary, the, the first responses to sin. And some of you all know how toxic those are when you try to be in close relationships with one another, when you're hiding, when you're covering. This all happens when we are trying to deal with sin and rebellion on our own terms. In each instance here, human beings tried to deal with sin on our own terms. Relationship with God is broken. Relationship with each other is filled with tension and difficulty. Same with the earth itself. One of the primary lessons about sin that the garden teaches us is that if we do not deal with sin God's way, it will cause breakdown in all of our relationships. One of my goals for us today is to expand our understanding of sin It goes beyond just the bad choices you make that get you in trouble. We were created for community and for intimate, healthy relationships. And sin makes those relationships divide and break down. It gets more heart-wrenching than this. The next 8 to 11 minutes are going to be rough, you guys. But I'll try to make it better at the end. So, I don't know. It gets worse, is all I'm trying to say. After Adam and Eve, after the fear, shame, and guilt are on the scene... You see what happens in the first generation. The first kids. Cain kills his brother. Cain is jealous of Abel, and he hungers to have to be what Abel has. That kind of jealousy is shame in action. There is something wrong with me, and I need something else to fill that hole, even if it means killing my own brother. Cain didn't turn to God. He turned to a rock, and he killed his brother. Jealousy and murder are failures of relationships. Are they illegal? Is murder illegal? Yeah, absolutely. But it's, it's birthed from a breakdown in relationship, a shame-based breakdown, both with God and each other. Some of what it means to be made in the image of God, to be created for relationships, is that you learn, you learn how to be you only in and through relationships. You are a referential person. You learn how to be you only in the context of community. Real simply, you learn how to be a man by watching the men in your life as a little child. And you're not sitting there with a notebook saying, oh, this is what men do. The little kids are like sponges and they become whatever the, whatever the primary caregiver in their life is. Little boys will often look to their dad as the, the ideal of what a man is. Same for women. Little girls will watch mom, and that's what it means to be a mom. You learn how to be angry by watching how adults get angry in your life. You learn how to deal with money by watching how adults deal with money in your life. And I would argue that Cain learned how to be ashamed because he watched mom and dad be ashamed. A mentor of mine, some of you have probably been in his therapy chair, uh, he once put it to me this way. He said, if sin is not transformed by the grace of God, it will be transferred to the ones you love. So Dr. Plass, here's what he's saying. Sin becomes normalized in families. So in my case, the blessing of extravagance in my generation can turn into the sin of gluttony and self-indulgence. The The blessing of self-control can turn into greed and stinginess. If you grow up that way, it will feel normal to you until you're confronted by someone whose normal is different than yours. And when life gets hard, we often revert back to whatever feels normal, 
even if you have good Christian language about why that would be wrong. It's deeper than what your brain can carry. Sin is fundamentally relational. And when our individual sins are not confronted, our sin becomes generational. Meaning, my personal sins will affect the relationships in my life. And if that's not confronted and dealt with, those sins will be passed on to the next generation. We will normalize sin in our family systems, and the next generation will learn how to be sinful just because that's the way we do things. The sobering verse that talks explicitly about this from Exodus 34, God says, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation. Now, this isn't saying God has fireballs of wrath that to the great-great-grandchildren, he's going to throw fireballs of wrath down onto the children. God is saying that sin affects more than the sinner. It affects the entire family. And if an individual continues to sin, if it becomes a pattern, it distorts all of their relationships. And if that pattern continues, those distortions will be transferred to the next generation. It will feel normal, and we will keep doing what is normal. Kids will act like parents, even if it's sinful, because it will feel normal. And again, there's a vivid picture of this that plays out. Sometimes reading the book of Genesis can feel like watching the Maury show. Y'all ever watch Maury? It's messy in there, you guys. So here's, let me just give you an example of what this looks like practically, what I'm talking about. So one of the other first families, one of the most important families in the Bible is Abraham. You may remember a heartbreaking scene from Abraham's life for Genesis 20. Abraham moved south to the Negev and lived for a while between Kadesh and Shur. Then he moved to Gerar. While living there as a foreigner, listen now, Abraham introduced his wife, Sarah, by saying, she's my sister. So King Abimelech of Gerar sent for Sarah and had her brought to him at his palace. So he's nervous because he married a beautiful woman. He's nervous about what will happen to him there what they will do to him, and so he lies to save his own skin. And to put it a little more poignantly, he puts his wife in a position to be serial raped by a king so that he can keep himself safe. It's horrific. It's shameful and ridiculous. And thanks be to God, God shows up in a dream to the king and says, hey man, that's somebody's wife and I'll kill you if you touch her. (laughs) So God swoops in and saves the day. And just let me ask you, what do you think that first night back in the tent with Sarah and Abraham was like? Do you think that might have affected their relationship at all? These two later have a miracle son named Isaac. Like his father, after his mom and dad die, Isaac moves to a new land. He becomes a foreigner. He marries a beautiful woman named Rebecca, like, like his daddy did. And Isaac is one of the more important people in the Old Testament, and we get really one big story about him as a grown man. And it comes from Genesis chapter 26. So Isaac has moved, and he's a foreigner. When the men who lived there asked Isaac about his wife, Rebecca, he said, she's my sister. He was afraid to say, she is my wife. He thought they will kill me to get her because she is so beautiful. The sins of the father will be passed to the third and fourth generation. 
What happens? He's afraid. So what does the fear make him do? Well, I'll just do what's normal. What do you do when you might be in danger? Well, you lie and say whatever you've got to do to get out of it. Protect your own skin. He puts his wife in harm's way to save his own skin, just like his father did. He feared for his life, just like his father did. So he exploits his wife, just like his father did. Sin that is not confronted personally shows up in relationships. Personal sin, undetended, becomes generational sin. And if generational sin is not confronted and healed, the consequences become even more devastating still. So I need you to pay very close attention here. For time's sake, you may need to go back and and read through this passage I'm about to share with you. We'll get to this in a couple of months in our series on Matthew. Towards the end of his life, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. There's this passage in Matthew 23. He's got the seven woes. He's cursing the Pharisees. He's indicting them for their hypocrisy, which is a theme of the book of Matthew. And look at what he says to them. I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers of religious law, but you will kill some by crucifixion. You will flog others with whips in your synagogues, chasing them from city to city. As a result, listen, you will be held responsible for the murder of all godly people of all time, from the murder of righteous Abel to the murder of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you killed in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar. Leave that up for a second, please. Jesus is looking to the Pharisees, and he's holding them responsible for the murders of people who were not even alive when the Pharisees had been born. And what's more, most often it wasn't Pharisees that killed prophets. It was kings, it was rulers. Throughout, remember, throughout Matthew, we've pointed out that Jesus is indicting the hearts of Pharisees, not just their personal actions. And throughout Matthew 22, he is indicting them for the cultures and systems that he has created, that they have created even the ones that perhaps at times were created with good intentions. And now he's saying that they are responsible for the murder of godly people of all time because of what they've created. Pharisees, in many instances, were doing what felt normal to them, what their fathers had done. But look at how this builds. If we are made for relationship and we're created for community, if we belong to one another and we have interconnected lives, personal sin that's not confronted becomes generational sin. Generational sins that are not confronted have the power to become culture, religion-wide sin. And even though it felt normal to them, and even though I bet many Pharisees weren't shaking their fists at God by the things they were doing, Maybe some of them had good intentions. Jesus is saying, you are responsible for this. So here's here's what we must see. Sin is relational. Relational sin becomes generational sin, and generational sin becomes systemic sin. Systemic sin is when culture becomes so distorted that sin just feels normal. It becomes, sin becomes so embedded in the way we live that it's no longer called sin. We'll say things like, that's life, or it's just the way it is. 
Oftentimes, the explicit beliefs or the explicit acts of sin might remain hidden, and then stress and anxiety hit like it does in Isaac's life, and that sin becomes exposed. We need relationships, and sometimes we need a prophetic voice like Christ's here with the Pharisees saying, what you are doing is not normal. This is not normal. Sin is more than the wrong choices you make or the wrong thoughts you think. It is those things, but it is far deeper and far greater. It's how we relate to one another. It's how we relate to God, how we build our culture, and how that culture creates its laws and its customs. And if we are to take Christ's words seriously, we must learn to take responsibility for sins, even if we are not the ones who confronted them. We must learn what it means to own the sins of our fathers, to confront them and correct them. Or else, like the Pharisees in Matthew 23, we will become participants in them and be held responsible for them. So now, if sin is far deeper, far more serious, far more pervasive than I think many of us consider on a day in and day out basis, I think that must also mean that the gospel is far bigger, far greater, far deeper, far more pervasive than many of us realize. And that is the beauty of confronting sin post-resurrection. If you see your distortions are deeper, that will lead you to see the gospel as even greater. The, The far more twisted you see yourself as being, the far more beautiful you will see the risen Christ as being. So listen, sin destroys relationships through fear, shame, and guilt. But Jesus comes to restore relationships through his whole gospel of kingdom, cross, and grace. This is stuff we have been talking about for 20 years at Sojourn. God's gospel begins with the stunning announcement by Jesus Christ, which should clue us into the breadth of the gospel. He doesn't come saying, behold, I will forgive your sins. I'm not saying Jesus didn't come to forgive your sins, but that is not what the second person of the Trinity came announcing. Look at Mark chapter 1. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. This is Jesus. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. What is the good news? The kingdom of God is near. This gospel announcement begins with a declaration that a kingdom has invaded the earth. This is the fulfillment of Eden, a truer and better garden. And listen, no one lives in a kingdom alone. You realize that? How weird would it be for one person, one king, an entire kingdom living there by himself? No, it implies citizens. It implies community and people. In this kingdom, we are safe, both with God and each other. Systems, generations, families, individuals, all of it is healed. So to a people hiding in fear, Jesus comes announcing a kingdom. There is a way for you to be truly safe. Well, how can this be? This leads to the second aspect of the gospel. We don't just work our way into the kingdom of heaven. No, it's through the cross of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Leave that up, please. Made right with Christ. Other translations will call that reconciled. Reconciliation, that is a relational term, made right with God. You get to be friends again. Relationship is restored. Our sins are forgiven through the death of Christ so we could be restored to our relationship with God and each other. 
We gain entrance into the kingdom because the cross forgives our guilt and restores our relationship with God. We can be honest. We can turn from our brokenness because Christ has set us free. And we can do this for the sake of life and relationship because the gospel also heals our shame. Our shame is healed through the gospel of God's grace. This is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. Because he loves us, he sent his son to die for us and raise for us so we could enter into a whole new way of living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So here's the whole gospel. Next slide. Our fear is quieted by the gospel of God's kingdom. Our guilt is forgiven by the gospel of God's cross and our shame is healed by the gospel of God's grace. Through this gospel, a whole powerful transforming gospel, through this gospel, we can confront our personal sins. We can confront our generational sins and even our systemic sins because only this gospel provides us enough security, enough assurance, enough direction that we can take a long look in the mirror and see the places that may feel normal to us but are sinful distortions of God's relational design. We can look in our families and see things that feel normal to us but are in fact distortions of God's relational design. We can look at our city, our state, our country, our whole world, and only this gospel gives us the power and the freedom, the security to confront those things which in fact are not normal. We need a bigger gospel because sin is such a bigger deal than most of us realize. We need a bigger gospel, and thanks be to God, we have one. And so every week, we root ourselves in the reality of this gospel by calling our minds to the night Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. When the meal was over, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this in remembrance of me. Now I want you to see how the whole gospel, the whole gospel plays out here. So first, Jesus is announcing that we can come to him that there is forgiveness, security, that we have a place at his table and he invites us in. And this is made possible because his body was given for us. That's the payment that was received. And we will be kept forever safe, forever loved because the blood of Christ was shed for us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God now. So I encourage you to take your little cup. If you missed one, there's some on the sound booth there back in the lobby. Open this. And see the wonder of it. He gave us something to eat and to drink, to taste, that becomes who we are, something we participate in. So take the wafer and remember the body of Christ was given for you. Eat this in remembrance of him. Open the cup. See the juice and remember the blood of Christ was shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this in remembrance of him. So listen, these next few weeks will be difficult for us as a church family. But again, healthy families can have hard conversations. 
I encourage you to go home and look at the supplemental resource channel we have for this series on Right Now Media that has incredible videos, articles, plenty you can read uh, that supports what we're talking about and to help us understand. And I encourage you to spend time this week resting in your complete forgiveness, your complete acceptance, and let's come next week prepared in Christ to face our sins for the sake of healing. We'll respond now by standing and singing, or you can give on your way out. I'll pray for us, and then we will respond. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook, or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.